It's Tuesday, June 22nd, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. I've long been fascinated with Mexico's drug cartels, and in particular the Sinaloa cartel once led by Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. El Chapo now resides at a maximum security federal prison in Colorado, He's back in the news because his wife, the former beauty queen, Emma Coronel Aspuro, was arrested in February. She pleaded guilty to three charges earlier this month, including drug trafficking. Some suspect that in return for more favorable treatment, shall we say, she's actively cooperating with the U.S. government. To walk us through this latest chapter in the life and times of El Chapo, we have with us today Phoebe Eaton an investigative journalist and author of the best nonfiction book about El Chapo you'll ever read. The book is called In the Thrall of the Mountain King. We start by talking about El Chapo's pre-trial conferences in New York City. Here we go. Phoebe, thank you very much for doing the podcast today. Thank you. Tell us, how did you come to write In the Thrall of the Mountain King? Well, Chapo had had an attorney who wound up dropping out of the case. But he said, you know, you should come to these preliminary hearings at the courthouse because Chapo is brought out. It's just very interesting. So for the hell of it, I started showing up. And I think that the wife was there, Emma. And then I decided I want to see this case because from having covered mafia prosecutions, I knew that they would be bringing in people in the witness protection program, people you'd never hear from again, and that these people tell their life stories on the stand as a prelude to then telling what their interaction was with the defendant that substantiates the government charges. So that it's a good way to learn everything from soup to nuts about how these organizations work. And this is a drug trafficking organization and the most high profile one ever. So I just made a decision to start attending these proceedings. <laughs> and uh, I, I was doing it in a half-assed way. And for the first session of it, of court, when the trial was underway for the opening statements, I made a mistake that turned out not to be a mistake, which was I got there too late. I was stuck in the overflow courtroom, but I ended up sitting next to somebody who was from Sinaloa and a fixer who knew the family. And immediately I started thinking about what if I go to Sinaloa and meet that family and started working out these details with this guy was there for about a week and a half. So it was a happy accident. And then I went during Christmas. I was really quiet about (laughs) it. And so you did tell us what it was like interviewing El Chapo's mother. So, um, I knew they would want to see me because I had information to trade Uh because I was seeing him every single day and people that they'd known their entire lives were being hauled in to testify against him. So I knew they would want to hear about this and I knew they would want to hear just how he was doing. And, you know, I have to say the go between was skeptical and kept saying to me, you know, this might not happen. They might not talk to you. And I just knew that they would. And the first person I met with was his sister, Bernarda, who decided to meet with me. And this was a lucky break that I got inside of 
the mother's secret house in Culiacan. Now, Chapo's mother doesn't like the big city. <laughs> Be that as it may, he, he got her a house. And what's interesting about those houses in Culiacan is all you see from this street is a garage door. You can't see any rest of the house. And that's an intentional. And it makes it harder for people to get in there. And so this is one of these houses. You can hardly see anything from the street. And so I met with her there and things, I think that the furniture was kind of covered with sheets, but, and it was funny because it was very Baroque kind of over the top furniture. But what was interesting is I looked up on the wall and I realized that there was a painting of poppies (laughs) and those are, of course, that's, you know, from whence heroin comes. And that was a very big issue in that area where they were burning the poppies at some point, the government, you know, it's and to have poppies, even in planters was a bad thing. Mm. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting choice of artwork. And uh, I met with her and we had a really long conversation, but I knew in advance, I knew that they were members of an unusual religious sect that I think started in the United States and was spread by missionaries up in that area evangelist sect. And I felt like nobody had ever really researched this before they went to see them and talk to them about it. It was a sect where there was speaking in tongues and laying of the hands on the faithful to, to perform bodily cures. Wow. You know, and, and they were happy to talk about it because it's, you know, this is something they're deeply into. It also expiates any, I think, any guilt over the rest of the family right. business you know, and, and the proximity to it. So I, I, I think that anyone who'd ever spoken to this these folks just assumed they were Catholic. Right, right. And just, you know, and they, in fact, not only did is Bernarda someone who speaks in tongues, but she did say Chapo was involved in that, that he too had done that, and that sometimes the congregation would get around him and they would all put their hands on him as a form of healing. And it just sort of blew my mind. (laughs) That's incredible. And by the way, he's involved in that religion, but I I knew that he hadn't converted. I could tell. And I knew this must be an issue for this mother. So I asked her and then lots of stuff tumbled forth about that. Like you had to know what to, to ask. But anyway, he's also somebody he managed to survive. And that's something that fuels the family's religion. They are sure that this religion works because he's still alive. That was the, the, this proof because so many people around him, uh, you know, died, uh, you know, in, in these wars they would have with each other over territories right. and over border territory. Because what they all are are, you know, high-end transportation people. Like, it's as if they're a glorified FedEx. Okay, well, tell me about that. The logistics of the drug trade. You know, cocaine comes from like Colombia and Ecuador. And cocaine used to enter this country, I think, in mainly like through Miami, through Florida. And then suddenly our Coast Guard really, I believe, starting in the late 80s, um, it's like they effectuated a long line net across that area. And it was like, well, how are we going to get that stuff into the United States? So it went inland and it went inland to you know, Mexico. So these guys who had these little planes, you know, and and that's Chapo's bunch in the mountains 
sort of like being in the right place at the right time. So you have all these people who have these like cappuccino, like peasant kind of backgrounds who suddenly were elevated into these positions of power because they had access to the planes. They knew where all these weird runways are. And also within that country, you have different families controlling different runways. Uh, so you could be running out of gas. This would happen a lot. A plane would leave from Colombia and suddenly there'd be an issue or it's running out of gas. But the only runway that's nearby is controlled by the other family. So it's too dangerous for them to land there. And it's like, you know, all kinds of issues with these airplanes. Half the conversations with these people are about airplanes. There's also, if you go to the cemetery in Culiacan, the main one, the uh, Jardin Humaya, many graves are of pilots. The last time Chapel was seen in his hometown, it's my understanding he was there for a funeral of a pilot. A pilot has the most elaborate grave cemetery of his hometown up in the mountains in Latuna, Sinaloa. So they were the last mile then, right? In the internet terms. Not quite. They get those drugs into the United States, but then the question is distribution. And by the way, they make more money on those drugs if those drugs reach New York City. Like the, the farther away from like Mexico those drugs can travel, the more money they're making because as those drugs are passed onward and onward and onward, the profits go up and, and they're getting a cut, I think, at every step of the way. As you point out, the, the further it gets into the United States, the more money the Sinaloa cartel makes. How did they build out the network in the U.S.? Those drugs come, they're secreted inside of the oil tanks of trains. Some freight trains have compartments inside of the oil tanks where this stuff is concealed. In the roofs of freight trucks, they can't possibly check all of the trucks coming in from Mexico. Right. That, that's where you find that stuff. How did they recruit people? I think there's always people who are willing right. <laughs> in desperate straits enough. There's a lot of money in it. And, and by the way, everybody always evaluates Mexico through the prism of the United States as if there would be equal social mobility down there. Well, there's not, you know, especially in these rural areas. They don't have the social mobility, the schools, the opportunities like we do. Right. You know, so you get a lot of people going into that business because they want to have a nice life. They want to experience probably what they see on television, you know, and they're living in tremendous poverty. And right. I just feel like there's no patience for that up here, little understanding of that. The city of Culiacan, if there were not no drug trade and there, it would all fall into the river, hmm. you know, and that, that's, I'm sure that's the case with other cities there. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk more about El Chapo and about the mysterious Emma. Welcome back to News Items uh, here with Phoebe Eaton. Let's switch gears and talk about El Chapo's wife, Emma. First of all, is she his wife? She's, if you're somebody from these rural areas, you know, Chapo's own father was married before to somebody right you know and i think it's the first marriage that's the legal marriage but it's like there's no divorce court 
There aren't like right. divorce lawyers running around there. You know, <laughs> if you have somebody in jail, you know, then there's a person out there who is ostensibly the current wife, but then that person is known in the law as the sentimental partner and they will let that person come in to visit. So Emma was sort of the last wife of this series of wives and, and happily for him. And you never know if it was actually a calculated move too. She also has this American citizenship. So right. she was the only one who was allowed to be in the, the courtroom, you know, allowed to come up because she didn't need a visa. She is a citizen here. Right. So last week she pleads guilty to three counts. When I first read the story, I thought that has to be some kind of plea bargain or cooperation deal. But take us through what you think led to her plea. Well, you can have a, you know, people plea out and they're not cooperating. Right. So there's been a lot of conjecture that she's actually cooperating. Right. And in the Mexican press, but interestingly, not in our press, Emma has a female lawyer, Marielle Colon, who's making it sound like she's a victim of these terrible jail conditions that are actually pretty par for the course. Like they complained that no bottled water was for sale. You know, <laughs> the lights are on 24 hours. That's a sort of a standard thing in the cells. This would appear to be an effort to have people in Mexico believe Emma she's, is not cooperating because how could the state be treating her this way? Like giving right. her a thin blanket in this over-air-conditioned jail, et cetera. Right. I'm going to add here, I can't find her in the Bureau of Prison System as being anywhere. By the way, that's another sign of being a cooperator. She could be in a safe house for most of this. If she's going into the witness, federal witness program, WITSEC, the government would sponsor her for one of the six nationwide specialized WITSEC facilities. They are certainly nicer than a federal penitentiary. They're like a low-end country club in there. She would stay there until sentencing. Sentencing supposed to happen in September, but look for that sentencing to be postponed. Look for mm -hmm. something weird to happen with that date. And by the way, people spend years living in those facilities. A sentencing can happen seven years after. They take a long time and sometimes, and there's a reason for that, that everybody is game for that. Because it gives, if that person's cooperating, it gives that person a chance to prove their utility. And mm -hmm. lots of people want to do that time up front so that at the sentencing, they could be released with time served. Right. You know? Right. So I'll just say this about what's happened thus far. As far as this sequence of events, everything's been too ordered and too fast to fit the narrative of an airport arrest and non-cooperation. Emma Coronel, she not only pled to everything in the initial complaint, but also additional charges and an all-encompassing forfeiture. That's the kind of thing that's dickered over. Right. You know what right. I mean? Like, yeah. like you want the forfeiture to be less. Uh, you want the, you know, it's like you go, actually, t they tend to go down in charges. Like, okay, we'll do this, but you got to take this charge off. Right. But there's a, this 10 to 11 year ceiling on her sentence that the government appears ready to recommend when there were some of those charges had life was a possibility. So that's a big concession considering her trespasses. And that appears to have been negotiated. There's actually a lot of people she could inform on and give testimony against the money launderers and accountants 
as he involved her in these things. And if she is cooperating, it's because she wants to stay in the United States, because I think she could have avoided that just if you just stayed in Mexico. She must perceive herself to be under genuine threat in Mexico. And Mexico is a place where anything can happen. America isn't such a natural for her, even if she has citizenship. She speaks and writes very little English. The threat could be from Chapo's former partner, Mayo Zambada, who's the head of the Sinaloa cartel. Chapo's own four sons who are active, very active in the cartel still. And they're from other mothers. And possibly this could all be over money, her knowledge of who's been laundering and where those billions might be. She knows that sometimes wives do get killed. The wife of Chapo's ex-partner, Guero Palma, celebratedly had her head chopped off. I think Guero Palma was about to get out of jail. The guy who had seduced his wife arranged to have her head chopped off and have it FedEx to Guero Palma, and their children were thrown off a bridge. So... It's like, let that be a warning to you about, about this cartel. Jeez. People should bear in mind there's never been a big seizure of Chapo's money or properties. So where is that stuff? The feds ordered up a $12.7 billion forfeiture from him. That money represented his life earnings, you know, their estimate of his life earnings. You know, so this money is out there. Let's talk about $12.8 billion. Where is it? So these cartel jefes are notoriously polygamous, and they also have a string of mistresses. And a lot of these women are put in harness, finding straw owners for property and also for companies that are laundering money. So these things are not in the cartel head, head's name. And then it becomes very hard to pursue this stuff for forfeiture or seizure because these properties and these companies are not lawfully titled, the United States can't pursue this stuff for forfeiture and seizure. And, you know, amongst this uh, demographic, real estate becomes a currency. And you'll see some of them paying off debts to each other with literal property deeds. Well, <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> Are there other currencies? I mean, are they, are they have they adopted Bitcoin and or yes. stablecoin or whatever? Yes, they're yeah, they're into that. They're into everything. It's like whack a mole with this demographic. It's like if something gets shut down for them, you know, they find the way into the other thing. But yes, they're involved in cryptocurrency. Crypto would seem to be the since it doesn't touch the banking system, it seemed like to be the, the preferred currency, if you will. It's hard to deal with, though, because there are ways of tracking. Even, I think, two weeks ago in the newspapers, there was something about, you know what, all of it can be tracked. You know, it's, I th just think it's still, it's new, it's still a bit suspect. Of course, it can go down in value, too. Right. You know, that doesn't thrill people, I'm sure. I mean, it's like the Russian mobsters who invest with a hedge fund manager and then that the value goes down and then they show up at the guy's house in the middle of the night saying no 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 we want to cash out and give us you know what the original stake right, was right uh you know so i know they're involved but it's not gigantic for them yet there's still a lot of stash houses around mexico 
that are empty, but the rooms are filled with cash, just piled up cash. Like pallets full of cash? Yes. Wow. That's another mode of storage. So that's another, you asked about other instruments. Well, that's one. (laughs) (laughs) With Chapo and the Supermax in Colorado, uh, what are the prospects for the Sinaloa cartel in this new post-Chapo environment? It's as if he never happened. <laughs> it's the prospects are excellent. I think that if they're having problems, it's just with other cartels trying to infringe their turf. It's like there were there's always um, fresh bodies, you right. know, to throw at it. Don't forget he's done a long periods of time in, in jail, but he was a little more able to run these enterprises from jail because those jails were Mexican jails. You know, one of Chapo's problems in his trial was he was a micromanager, you know, getting involved even in these tiny transactions. But you sort of need that. You need this feeling of accountability, you know, that the wrath will come down upon you if this shipment doesn't arrive. And people would be terrified who worked for that organization if the shipment didn't arrive because it was immediately suspected that you possibly stole it. Right. You know, and... There's just, there's trust issues <laughs> among these people. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I'm sure Mayo Zambada easily filled the position after Chapo went to jail. Well, trust issues are always difficult. <laughs> and we could discuss those for a long time, but we've run out of time. So, Phoebe, thank you very much for joining us. And we hope to have you back very soon. Oh, you're welcome. I hope so. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was the great Billy Gardella. I'll be back tomorrow with my co-host Rebecca Darce for a round of news analysis. We'll see you then.